Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Demania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital, and we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things med-ed in the PQ. PQ Doc on Call focuses on interesting PQ cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. Welcome to our episode of a six-month-old ex-30-week preemie with bacterial meningitis now transferred to the PQ due to concern for eye rolling and apnea. Here is the case presented by Rahul. A six-month-old ex-30-week premature infant presented with the chief complaint of persistent fever for five days and recurrent episodes of emesis. Over the course of the week, the patient exhibited upper respiratory infection symptoms and subjective fever as reported by the parents. A decrease in oral intake and sporadic emesis were observed along with increased somnolence. A notable episode occurred today when the child exhibited eye rolling followed by a significant drop in the home oxygen saturation monitor. The oxygen saturation monitor read in the mid-80s. Our patient has an unremarkable past medical history besides the prematurity without any known chronic illnesses or recent hospitalization. The child was oxygen dependent for a brief period of time, however, has been working with the pulmonologist to wean off of the home oxygen. Upon admission, the patient takes no current medications, has no allergies, and is up to date as per age-appropriate immunization schedule. There is no significant family history and the patient resides with both parents who are non-smokers, and there has been no recent travel history reported. What prompted the family to bring the child to the emergency department was the persistent fever, the recurrent episodes of emesis, and the increased somnolence, which was not really typical for their child. Upon evaluation to the ED, the patient responded to voice and touch, demonstrating a strong suck reflex when offered a pacifier. Vital signs showed fever with raised white cell count at 27.2 with neutrophilic predominance. Physical exam revealed rigidity in all four limbs without tremor or clonus. A rapid head CT was obtained due to the clinical presentation, which showed dilated lateral, third, and fourth ventricles and periventricular cystic encephalomalacia. The respiratory viral panel ruled out any common URI infections, and as the patient had no major signs of increased intracranial pressure, and an infectious etiology was at the top of the differential, a lumbar puncture was performed, and it revealed a concern for infection, as the CSF was notable for leukocytosis with the predominance of neutrophils and low glucose. The patient was started on prophylactic Keppra and was admitted to the hospital floor. Now, I do want to highlight the PICU course. Following a 14-day course of antibiotics on the floor, the patient actually exhibited an acute change in clinical status. The patient had altered mental status, ended up having bradycardia, pupillary changes, eye rolling, and hypothermia, which prompted a rapid response team assessment. A repeat head CT revealed worsening ventriculomegaly, hydrocephalus, and an enlarged fourth ventricle, suggesting significant mass effect. In response to this acute change, the patient is now in the PICU, has been intubated, and neurosurgery has been consulted to place an EVD, 
to help alleviate the increased intracranial pressure. Subsequently, an MRI and MRV imaging has confirmed the suspicion of our topic today, which is cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. Rahul, to summarize key elements from this case, we have a six-month-old ex-premie who now presents with group B strep meningitis. We have mass effect due to enlarged ventricles requiring an EVD. We have an abnormal CT and now an abnormal MRI, MRV, suggesting sinus venous thrombosis, which you pointed out is the, our topic of discussion for today. So Rahul, before we dive into the cerebral sinus venous thrombosis, can you briefly tell us about the anatomy of venous distribution in the brain? Absolutely, Pradeep. And this is quite a throwback to medical school and neuroanatomy. Now, breaking this down, dural venous sinuses, or simply cranial sinuses, serve as critical conduits, returning venous blood from the brain to the internal jugular veins and subsequently to the right side of the heart in a structurally normal heart. Now, this venous blood is primarily derived from the cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF, which circulates within the subarachnoid space. Now, here's a fascinating point. Protrusions within the subarachnoid space, called arachnoid granulations, act as gateways enabling CSF to transition from the subarachnoid space into the cerebral sinuses. These granulations essentially act as a drainage system clearing the CSF from the subarachnoid space into the venous circulation. Now, our cerebral venous drainage system is dichotomous, consisting of superficial and deep networks. The superficial system includes the cortical veins, the superior sagittal sinus, the confluence of veins known as the torcula, the usually dominant right transverse sinus, the sigmoid sinus, and the internal jugular vein. These are the larger veins in the venous circulation. In contrast, the deep venous system drains blood from the basal ganglia and germinal matrix in preterm neonates through a system of veins, including the basal veins, the vein of Galen, the straight sinus, the basal vein of Rosenthal, the torcula, and the often less dominant left transverse sinus, which drains into the left sigmoid sinus and the left internal jugular vein. Now, I think what's really important is to highlight the superior sagittal sinus. The superior sagittal sinus stands as the most prominent dural venous channel, draining posteriorly into the transverse or lateral sinuses and eventually into the internal jugular veins on each side. This sinus network is nourished by numerous tributary surface cortical veins of varying sizes and locations. Now, among these tributaries, the most significant of the veins is named trollard, which drape vertically over the parietal lobe and drain into the superior sagittal sinus, and the veins of labae, which are situated horizontally over the temporal lobe. So, these parietal and temporal lobe veins are going to drain then into the transverse sinus. Now, completing the intricate network, the cavernous sinus drains the anterior inferior aspect of the brain through the petrosal sinuses, which have a superior and inferior division. And these petrosal sinuses also eventually feed into the transverse sinus. To summarize, the major vessels you need to know here are superior sagittal, inferior sagittal, vein of Galen, 
transverse sinus and all of this drainage is going to go back to the internal jugular and into the right atrium in a structurally normal heart. Check out the infographic that we are going to post on Twitter with this episode to review the ventricular anatomy. So Pradeep, to just transition a little bit, can you describe the clinical syndromes associated with sinus venous thrombosis? Of course. Cerebral venous thrombosis, or CVT, typically leads to two main pathophysiological consequences. There's either cortical venous infarction leading to focal neurologic syndromes and raised intracranial pressure like that which is seen in our infant here. In adolescents and adults, a striking feature of dural sinus thrombosis is the sudden or gradual onset of headache experienced by almost 70 to 90% of the patients. This is often puzzling because patients' neurologic exam may be completely normal. The superior sagittal sinus is usually the culprit and cause symptoms like headaches, elevated intracranial pressure, and papilledema. In about 40% of patients, seizures may manifest usually as focal convulsions. If cortical infarction sets in, stroke-like deficits may follow. Specific neurologic symptoms appear hours or days after the onset of a headache. These include paralysis of one or both legs or even one side of the body, stemming from infarction in the frontoparietal regions near the vein of trollard. Similarly, aphasia and confusion might occur due to infarction in the temporal lobe close to the vein of labae. Cavernous sinus thrombosis presents a unique set of symptoms. Patients experience periorbital and forehead pain, ocular chemosis, and paralysis of cranial nerves that traverse the cavernous sinus. This include the third, fourth, and sixth cranial nerves, as well as the ophthalmic and maxillary branches of the fifth cranial nerve. Extension of the thrombosis to Petroza sinus can lead to brainstem and cerebellar signs. Interestingly, seizures often manifesting as jitteriness or lethargy, are commonly seen in neonates. Older infants and children, on the other hand, are more prone to exhibit focal and diffuse neurologic signs. It's crucial for clinicians to consider cerebral venous thrombosis as a potential diagnosis across a broad spectrum of acute neurologic presentations in children. This consideration become particularly important when neuroimaging reveals evidence of hydrocephalus, subdural effusion, or hematoma, subarachnoid hemorrhage, or intracerebral hemorrhage or infarction, especially in the parietal or occipital regions. Also keep in mind that venous thrombosis can present with pseudotumor cerebri or isolated headaches, both of which have been well documented in the literature. Awesome, Pradeep. Well, thanks so much for highlighting some of the key signs and symptoms we need to watch out for in the PICU. I think this is a great time for us to integrate a multiple choice recall question. So I'll go ahead and give you all the MCQ. In the context of cerebral venous thrombosis, which of the following cranial nerves can be affected by a cavernous sinus thrombosis? A, cranial nerve two, B, cranial nerve three, four, and six, C, cranial nerve seven, or D, cranial nerve 10 and nine. Let's pause and think it through. Rahul, that's an excellent question. 
And the correct answer is B, cranial nerves 3, 4, and 6. Cavernous sinus thrombosis can lead to a range of symptoms, including periorbital and forehead pain, ocular chemosis, and paralysis of cranial nerves that pass through the cavernous sinus. This include the third, which is the oculomotor, fourth, which is the trochlear, and sixth, which is the abducens cranial nerves, which are responsible for the movement of the eye. This alignment of symptoms is unique feature of cavernous sinus thrombosis, making it distinct in the spectrum of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis presentations. Absolutely, Pradeep. To summarize, cerebral sinus venous thrombosis has clinical symptoms that can be subtle and varied. And we talked about the difference between the presentations in neonates, which is more seizure-like, and children, which is going to be more of the retroorbital headaches. Now, just to go into this a little bit further, the symptomatology really falls into two categories. Symptoms related to elevated intracranial pressure due to the hindered venous drainage, and those linked to focal brain damage from venous ischemia infarction or hemorrhage. And remember those small veins that were in the temporal and parietal lobe. Now, cerebral venous thrombosis often presents with insidious, slow, sometimes even bilateral symptoms. So delays in diagnosis, unfortunately, are common. And we really want to advocate for is a high level of suspicion, especially when a child is going to be presenting with hydrocephalus or any focal neurological deficit. Rahul, now that we have an idea of dural sinuses, what are some of the risk factors which predispose children to venous thrombosis in the cerebral sinuses? Absolutely, Pradeep. And I think that the factors when we have a patient in front of us can be multifactorial, but I want to really highlight some key pathophysiologic schemas that we really need to keep in mind. I think the top two are going to be dehydration or some sort of CNS or sinus-based infection. Others are going to include intracranial surgery or VP shunt placement. We can have autoimmune disorders such as hemolytic anemias, iron deficiency anemias, genetic syndromes such as Down syndrome, metabolic syndromes such as DKA. Malignancies can predispose you to a hypercoagulable state and thus cerebral venous thrombosis. There could be medications which could predispose you to cerebral venous thrombosis, such as L-asparaginase, cisplatin, very important in adolescence, oral contraceptive pills, and exogenous administration of erythropoietin. Genetic thrombophilic states are identified in about 20% of adult patients and include most commonly factor V Leiden, but there could also be other hypercoagulable inherited disorders such as protein CNS deficiency, prothrombin mutation, and hyperhomocystinuria. All in all, this is to say that when a patient is going to be diagnosed with cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, you're going to be working very closely with your hematologist to screen and work up these inherited thrombophilias. Most recently, there has been a rare association of cerebral venous thrombosis with two adenoviral vector vaccines against COVID-19. And in the study, it was primarily seen in women. So just to summarize, prothrombotic disorders are found in about 50% of children with cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. And the AHA actually recommends a thorough evaluation for risk factors, including thrombophilia in children 
who present with cerebral venous thrombosis. And I think that it is very vital to include the hematology team early on, especially if you see on imaging that the patient has a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, it's time to initiate a multidisciplinary team approach. All right, Pradeep. So it's time to dive into a little bit more of the practical side of things. In your experience, what are the key imaging techniques and laboratory tests that can really make the difference when trying to pin down a diagnosis of cerebral venous thrombosis? High alert. Listeners, especially when dealing with patients known to have risk factors for cerebral sinus venous thrombosis, picture this. A child with new onset DKA suddenly starts having seizures or an infant severely dehydrated due to gastroenteritis becomes fussy, irritable, or experiences a focal seizure. In these scenarios, it is essential to have a discussion with your neuroradiologist and consider ordering an imaging study. Our preferred imaging tools for detecting cerebral venous sinus thrombosis are CT and MRI with contrast-enhanced venography. They are like flashlights in a dark room, illuminating the scene by revealing an interruption in the contrast column at the site of the thrombus. Notably, an empty delta sign is formed by dural wall enhancement without intrasinus enhancement. Non-enhanced CT scans show the acute thrombus as hyperdense, while non-enhanced T1 and T2-weighted MRI scans lack the usual flow void at the thrombus location. Time-of-flight MRI venography can be less sensitive alternative if you want to skip the contrast material. In cerebral sinus venous thrombosis, venous stroke manifests as an edematous region featuring a mix of infarction, hemorrhage, and contrast enhancement that dismisses any respect for arterial territories. Note in cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, Accompanied by DIC, cerebral hemorrhage may occur independently of the hemorrhagic venous infarction. In rare instances, subarachnoid hemorrhage may be the lone imaging sign of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. On the lab side of things, let's talk about our go-to tests, usually a CBC with differential, DIC, a comprehensive metabolic panel, and ESR. If infection is on the radar, consider adding CRP, procalcitonin, and a blood culture. Specific thrombophilial tests should be guided by our consultation with the hematologist. Rheumatology or genetic consults may be necessary depending on the underlying cause. Don't forget the other assessments like chest x-ray, EKG, echocardiography, or even an ultrasound of the extremities, which might be crucial for identifying generalized clotting risks. So Rahul, let's imagine we have connected the dots. The history, physical exam, and the diagnostic tests all point towards cerebral venous thrombosis. Could you walk us through your strategy for managing this challenging diagnosis? What would be your go-to framework to navigate this terrain? Absolutely, Pradeep. So I think we really need to start with basic supportive care, and that is airway, breathing, and circulation. This involves managing the airway and hemodynamics, as well as close neurological monitoring. I think it's essential to keep a continuous EEG handy and talk to your neurosurgeons and have a discussion on intracranial pressure monitoring as well. Absolutely, Rahul. Next, we would consult a multidisciplinary team comprising of neurosurgeons, neurointerventional radiologists, the neurologists, as well as the hematologists 
to weigh the bleeding risk in the patient and discuss with the family our plan for anticoagulation. If deemed appropriate, we typically initiate an infusion of unfractionated heparin. Starting the heparin with a bolus and then continuous infusion is going to be essential in these patients. Typically, the target HEP assay is between 0.1 to 0.3 with the first check four hours after the infusion begins. Yes, that is absolutely correct, Pradeep. And we'd recommend checking levels at least once daily or anytime there are concerns about bleeding or thrombus progression. I think as you get a very steady state with your anticoagulation, after 24 hours of preventative anticoagulation, we would conduct a repeat head CT to ensure no worsening of the intracranial hemorrhage. Sometimes, Rahul, in a very high-risk kids, we actually skip the heparin bolus and just start the infusion at a lower rate to prevent bleeding. Absolutely, Pradeep. Thanks so much for highlighting that. If the CT scan after initiation of your heparin infusion appears stable and there's no signs concerning for bleeding, then we will gradually increase the heparin infusion to reach an anti-10A goal of 0.35 to 0.5. To summarize, it's important to note that we want to monitor labs daily while initiating and titrating the heparin infusion, especially a CBC. Also, we must make sure we are mindful of our neuroprotective strategies and control any systemic hypertension to minimize the bleeding risk. You are right, Rahul. Additionally, for patients on heparin, we avoid NSAIDs and arterial sticks or any procedures. It is also important to manage any possible infection with appropriate antibiotics and source control. Now, Rahul, can you tell us about the protocols for surgical procedures for these patients who are already on heparin? Absolutely, Pradeep. And again, this is going to be a team-based decision. But in cases where surgery is necessary, we typically hold the heparin four hours prior to the procedure. And, you know, for major surgeries, we try to even get the HEP assay checked beforehand and aim for a level less than 0.1 to 0.2. We also regularly monitor platelet count to evaluate for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Though it is rare in the pediatric population, if there is an unexplained or abrupt decrease in platelet count, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is a possibility and we need to consult with hematology immediately. I think another point to bring up here is that if you are up titrating on your heparin and you are unable to get to a therapeutic level, you should also check an antithrombin 3 level to make sure that you do not have to replace that factor. Remember, heparin works by potentiating the action of antithrombin 3. So just understand that relationship and how that plays in when you have escalating heparin. In severe cases, neurosurgical interventions such as the placement of an EVD may be required, especially in the acute setting like we saw in our case. And this is to decrease intracranial pressure in acute hydrocephalus or mass effect. Now, in the long term, patients might even require a ventriculoperitoneal shunt. And in cases of large venous infarctions and signs of brain herniation or raised intracranial pressure, decompressive hemicraniectomy may be beneficial. We also have been seeing increasing literature of considering neural interventional procedures in the dural venous sinuses, and this is going to be a coordinated decision between the interventional radiology folks and neurosurgery. 
I do think long-term, it's important to make sure we keep the rehab physicians also in consultation, especially after the acute period, as these patients may have neurological deficits that may need rehab long-term. Endovascular treatment of dural sinus venous thrombosis has been reported to have favorable results in case series, mainly for thrombectomy rather than thrombolysis in older children, especially those with severe of venous thrombosis, which does not respond to heparin therapy. But studies have lacked a comparison group. Cerebral sinus venous thrombosis specific mortality is about less than 10%, but neurologic deficits are usually present at the time of discharge or follow-up in a large percentage of survivors, and motor and cognitive sequelae may require long-term rehabilitation. Absolutely, Pradeep. And just like you mentioned, you know, when we dived into the literature, the mortality rate post cerebral sinus venous thrombosis ranges from about four to seven percent. But I think it's really important to note that the cerebral venous sinus thrombosis diagnosis is often linked to enduring neurological complications. As we wrap up our episode in the realm of our enlightening discussions, Today's episode on cerebral sinus venous thrombosis forms a perfect companion to our previous episode number three from February of 2021, in which we delved into the broad topic of pediatric stroke. I'd highly recommend tuning into that episode. These were one of our premier episodes as we started PQ Doc on Call, and I think that it will provide a great integration with our topic today. So Rahul, what are the three pivotal steps in managing PQ patient diagnosed with cerebral sinus venous thrombosis, and why is a multidisciplinary approach so vital in these cases? Absolutely. I think that this kind of gives us the gateway to summarize today's episode as we've talked about how important multidisciplinary care is in the diagnosis of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. The first key here is recognizing that sinus venous thrombosis requires keen clinical acumen given its nonspecific presentation. I think it's vital to act promptly by undertaking imaging and engaging specialists from neurology, interventional radiology, neurosurgery, hematology, etc. And I think the treatment hinges on managing coexisting factors like dehydration and infection and a proactive provision of anti-epileptic therapy as well as continuous EEG monitoring. Consulting hematology for initiating heparin infusion and talking about bolusing versus not, as well as your heparin therapeuticals, these are going to be essential concepts and discussions when it comes to cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. Remember, managing this condition is a multidisciplinary effort that demands swift, coordinated actions. This concludes our episode on cerebral sinus venous thrombosis. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamat, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.